to you this morning. We thank you uh, for bringing us to this place and for an opportunity to sing praises to you that you deserve probably even more than we can even fathom. So, Father, we thank you for your worthiness. We thank you for your provision. And we thank you, Jesus, for being everything that we need. So as we open up your word this morning, show us your glory in a new and fresh way. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, good morning, guys. Got a few announcements as we get started this morning. Our first one is about uh, Children's Church. So if you've ever served in our Children's Church, if you currently serve in our Children's Church, or if you are interested in serving in Children's Church, uh, we're going to have a meeting before, excuse me, after this service today in the second through sixth grade classroom. So you're welcome to, uh, to join up with that meeting. Uh, they're going to pass out some details that maybe you don't know about, uh, kind of talk about how we do things, but also there's some things about curriculum and, and all the stuff that goes along with that. So we want you guys to, if you feel called, to go back there and check it out and find out some more information about it. And, um, you know, even if you're, you're not absolutely sure you want to serve in that capacity, it's a good opportunity to find out what we do back there. Uh, if nothing else, you can leave the meeting and go, man, I need to pray for them. They need some help. Um, but anyway, it's, it's a wonderful thing to have as many children as God has blessed us with. We want to be good stewards and pour into them at their age level and prepare them for the future. So um, that's a way that we get to do that. So if you're interested, that'll be today after second service. Uh, secondly, uh, men, if you're interested in receiving updates, we're going to do, start doing some men's things, one of which is January 22nd. It will be at uh, Parkland Chapel. It's called a mandate because we all like mandates, right? But it's not like that kind of mandate. It's, it's like it's mandated that we get together. So uh, by the Lord, not by me and not by the government. So um, that being said, there's going to be a bonfire and a chili uh, dinner. So be kind of something fun to go hang out. Um, it's in Farmington. We can uh, go up there as a group if we want. And then I'm planning to do a men's Bible study, and I'm thinking it's going to be on Thursdays at 5.30 in the a.m. So if you're interested in that, and if you're manly enough, then you can show up. Uh, that's me mocking you a little bit to goad you to good works. So um, anyway, I think it'll be a really encouraging time. Um, and that's not the official time yet. We haven't settled yet. Um, our youth. Um, there's some opportunities coming up with the youth. They're going to be uh, joining together again tonight from 5 to 7 p.m. If you don't know this, they've been challenged to read the entire book of Micah this week. Uh, so most of them, if you push them hard enough, they might cram today. Uh, but if they can't cover the whole seven chapters, seven chapters, uh, have them cover the first two chapters, and they're going to begin a study in the book of Micah this evening. So I want to encourage you, if you're a youth or if you have youth, uh, to be, you know, become part of this group. It's pretty cool. And in the b first weekend of March, they're actually going to be going to something called the Ark Encounter, where it's a full-sized version of the Ark, and they get to learn about creation and everything that go pertains to the, the flood. And so uh, it's going to be an entire weekend where they leave on Friday and they get back Sunday. There is a cost attributed to it, and I don't know the exact cost, so I won't make something up while I'm sitting here, but I will say that if you feel called to send your kids, you should do that. 
And if you feel like that's too much money to spend, then you should let somebody know because there will be funds available if somebody needs a scholarship or something. And if you're sitting here and you're like, well, I don't have kids that are youth anymore, but I do have the ability and the desire to help somebody go and see this, then I want to encourage you to either write a check and put it in the box in the back and just annotate it for the ARC trip. And that's a way that if you want to, you can give to that. I've said last week, we don't do thermometers, we don't do fundraisers, but we will tell you when there are needs that are available. And if you have that God's gifted you in giving or in being generous and you want to do that and God's laid it on your heart, then go for it. Let that be worship between you and the Lord. So um, anyway, if you want to be updated about youth opportunities, there they are. And then uh, I think that's it. Except this Thursday at 5.30 p.m., everybody's favorite thing is going on. We're going to take down the Christmas decorations. So if you're interested in helping with that, um, we're going to be doing that this Thursday at 5.30 p.m. here. All right. Is that enough announcements? Should we move on to something uh, more exciting, hopefully? Exodus chapter 28. Exodus chapter 28. We've looked at the temple or the tabernacle in much detail over the last month and a half. And today we're going to be in Exodus chapter 28 and looking at the garments and the priesthood. Now, why does the priesthood matter? Because a priest represents God to man, and he also represents man to God. And we see this most clearly in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's a pretty good representation. And then at the same time, he bears our sin, and he takes the judgment for our sin, and then he acts as a high priest in the heavens. When he ascended from this place, to, from the earth to heaven, he now sits down in the, at the right hand of God the Father, and he intercedes for you and I, just like a high priest would in the days of the high priest. Except he lives forever to intercede for you and I. He doesn't die, and then a new guy comes in and has to learn all our quirks. Instead, he knows us intimately, he knows us absolutely, and he is uh, with the Father, and he prays for you and I, no matter what's going on, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so we have a high priest that can identify with our weaknesses because he took the time to put on human flesh, to be tempted in every possible way as we are, and yet he never sinned. And so now he takes his righteous life and he offers it up as a sacrifice for you and I. But in order to do this, there would first have to be a priesthood that this would point to. His ministry would be a type of, or the priesthood would be a ministry, a type of the ministry that he would ultimately fulfill completely. And so in Exodus chapter 28, verse 1, God speaking to Moses still there on Mount Sinai, He says, now take Aaron, your brother, Uh, Aaron was Moses' brother, and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister to me as priest. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. So this phrase will come up in the first four verses, that he may minister to me. Oftentimes we think that those who serve God, their first a duty is to serve people, but it's actually backwards. Uh, those who minister 
for God are to minister to God first, and then out of an abundance of what he receives from God, minister to people. And so it says here, uh, take from among you your brother Aaron and his sons and set them apart to minister to me. So this tells me that if you wanted, if you were in the days of Israel, you're of the 12 tribes, you didn't go to, you know, career day and walk around and go, you know, I'd kind of like to be a priest. So I'm going to go to college and get my priestly degree, my master of divinity. I'm going to get all the garments made up and then I'm going to get to be a priest. No, in order to be a high priest and to be a priest at all, you had to be born into a family. And how many of you picked what family you'd be born into? That's right, none of you did. Uh, because God picks. Whether you think he picked rightly or not, he chose you to be born into that family on purpose. And as people, we are meant to grow where we are planted by God, recognizing that he's in complete control of our circumstances. But as they've been born into this family, he says, you know, choose from among the children of Israel these men, so they may minister to me as priest. And you shall make holy garments, verse 2, for Aaron your brother, for glory and for beauty. And so they're chosen by birth. They can't decide they want to be a priest. God chooses them by their family. And then he says, I want you to make clothing for them that they may minister before me. So when they go before God and, and they're calling God doesn't say, okay, I've chosen you. Now you get cleaned up and decide what you're going to wear and then come before me and you'll be accepted. Instead, he says, you're chosen because of whose family you were born into. And not only that, but you can't even clothe yourself. I'm going to provide clothing for you. So they were chosen and they were covered for this purpose. And all of it is God's doing. None of it is theirs. I love this. Because the first thing that happened in Genesis, after the creation, man and God have a relationship. And man breaks that relationship. He sins against God. And the first thing they do is they hide, right? That's what we do when we do something wrong. We hide. And what do they do? They hide and then they cover themselves. They recognize their nakedness. And as they recognize their nakedness and they make for themselves clothing, fig leaves or leaves of some sort, um, what happens is God says, that's not good enough. Let me provide animal skins. Something has to die for you to be properly covered. And so this covering that the high priest, it's provided by God. It's not provided by man. It wasn't man's idea. It was God's. And religion, by the way, is man's way of relinking with God. And if God doesn't provide that relinking, then it's all our works, and all of our works is, are as filthy rags. And so God says, I'm going to provide a way that you can be reunited, reconciled with me. It's going to be a gift of God, not of works, lest you would boast about it. So verse 3 says, You shall speak to all who are gifted artisans, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments, to consecrate them, that he may minister to me as priest. So he says, I want you to make these garments. I'm going to give you the instructions on how to make them. But I'm going to fill artisans or artists with the spirit of wisdom, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. I'm going to fill them with my spirit so that they can make it properly so that it points to me. So 
not only did God say, I'm going to provide you a covering, but that he provides people to make the covering, and then he inspires them divinely to be able to make that covering. And so here we have in verse 3, he's going to provide people filled with the spirit of wisdom that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him so they can minister to me as priest. And these are the garments. So in verse 4, we have a summary of every garment he's getting ready to describe. So they, excuse me, these are the garments which they shall make. A breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a skillfully woven tunic, a turban. How many of you would love to have a turban do one of those little Middle Eastern dances? He says, I'm going to have you put a turban on them and a sash. Now, when we think of sash, we think of something that's just ornamental, but for them, it was a belt, something that held the whole outfit together. And if you've ever uh, worn a tunic or something that's been given in other countries, it's not, what do we work in? We work in pants, right? Because they, they stay close to our skin and they don't get caught in what, whatever we're doing and they make us able to move around. Well, if you're wearing a tunic and you're serving in the temple, you have to have a belt. You have to gird yourself Many times if, if men in that day were to go running and they were wearing a tunic, they would have to pull up their tunic around their legs and essentially tie it all together so that they could go and run. And so that's why the sash would be important. But in getting ahead of myself. So they shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons that they may, that he may minister to me as priest. So there's that phrase again clothed in robes of righteousness so that they may serve me. That's the church, by the way. If you want to serve God, you can't just do it out of, you know, just deciding, hey, I'm going to serve God. You have to come to him. You have to be called by him, chosen by him. And then you also have to be set apart by him, clothed in a manner that he will accept. Now, we don't get all these garb, these these. Uh, robes and a tunic and an ephod and all those things, do we? Uh, if, if not, if we did, we would all be dressed the same. But instead, he clothes us in robes of his righteousness. It's not a physical covering. It's a spiritual one. But it's what qualifies us to serve in the house of God. And so, verse 5, he says of the ephod, you shall take the gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and the fine linen and make the ephod of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen, artist, artistically worked. Now these colors matter because they symbolize separate things about Jesus. We've talked about this in s- several of our past times together, but gold is a symbol of uh, deity. Blue is the symbol of heaven. Purple is the symbol of royalty. Scarlet, the symbol of service or sacrifice. And fine woven linen, which is white, is the picture of uh, God's righteousness. But they're all to be weaved together. And it says in verse 7, They shall have two shoulder straps joined at its two edges, and so it shall be joined together. And the intricately woven band of the ephod, which is on it, shall be of the same workmanship, made of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen. And then you shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the stones, excuse me, the names of the sons of Israel, 
six of their names on one stone, six names on the other stone in order of their birth. So their birth order shall be placed on these stones. With the work of an engraver in stone, like the engravings of a signet. Now a signet is what they would wear on their hand to seal deals. They wouldn't sign their name. They would have this imprint, their brand, that would be engraved into something, and they would stamp it, and you would know who sealed the package or whatever. Uh, Another place, now we'll get there in a minute. So you shall engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel, and you shall set them in settings of gold. And you shall put the two stones on the shoulders of the ephod, as memorial stones for the sons of Israel. And so this is the point, verse 12. So Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders as a memorial. So these stones are set in gold. They're engraved with names on purpose because they would set on the ephod on the shoulders of the high priest when he enters into the Holy of Holies. He would literally bear them. He would carry them into the presence of God. I love this because God, through Jesus Christ, carries us. And if you've ever felt like you're carrying yourself, it's because you are trying to. And you, if you're like me and you try to carry yourself, you get worn out. But we were never meant to carry ourselves through this life, but we were meant to be carried by our high priest. You'll notice that these stones, and we are made, Peter says, as living stones, These stones have our names on them, or in this case, the tribes of Israel, and they are on the shoulders of the high priest. But before they're on the shoulders, they sit on gold. And gold is a picture of deity. It's God who is carrying us, not ourselves, not even the high priest. It's God who places us on the shoulders of Jesus. It's God who forgives us because he's carried our cross instead of us carrying it for ourselves. And so, he says, You shall also make settings of gold, and you shall make two chains of pure gold like braided cords, and fasten the braided chains to the settings. And so an ephod is a coat worn over shoulders and down. It looks like what we would probably call, uh, what do you you wear, an apron in the kitchen. Uh, What does an apron on a person in a kitchen symbolize? Well, it symbolizes, number one, they don't want to get stuff all over their good clothes, right? It's a, it's a garment of service, but it's also a garment of authority. And you know this if you've ever transgressed and entered the kitchen while somebody's cooking and you get in their way, uh, they, they have words for you. Well, the ephod, whether you know this or not, is a symbol of authority. He has the authority, and the authority rests upon his shoulders to represent these people. He's been called by God. He's been clothed by God. He's got authority. But what's interesting about this is that he's called to bear the sons of Israel on his shoulders into the presence of God. And what's interesting is that when I think of our high priest, when I think of shoulders, when I think of authority, it takes me to Isaiah in chapter 9 and verse 6. Many times we read this during Christmas programs. It says, Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the authority 
will be upon his shoulder. Now, we have the word government there, but government is authority, right? It's, it's what God has placed over us. Romans 13, 1 says that there's no government that God didn't set in place. He gives them authority. That's why they have it. But here it says, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, the authority. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his authority and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. His authority never ends. I love this because I don't know about you, but whether it's an election year or whether it's not, every government that's ever been set up has a time and a season where it actually has authority but they rise and they fall, don't they? They're temporary. You get your guy elected in, that's great for that four or eight years. But eventually, some other guy might be voted in. And then where is your hope placed? My hope is placed in a, on a government who has authority that never, ever, ever ends. And I'm thankful for that. Because when, if the government were ever to cease being what it is, my hope's not built upon that. It's a shaky foundation at best. But here we have the government that never ends, the authority. And so while the ephod is a, a thing of authority and it's held together by these settings and chains of gold, there's something else attached to it called a breastplate. Verse 15, you shall make the breastplate of judgment artistically woven according to the workmanship of the ephod. You shall make it. So it's going to be made exactly the same in some ways. The material and the, all the things that are woven together, they're going to match what the ephod looks like. And of gold, pur blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen, you shall make it. It shall be doubled into a square. A span shall be its length and a span shall be its width. And you shall put settings of stones in it Four rows of stones, the first row shall be a sardius, a topaz, and an emerald. This shall be the first row. The second row shall be a turquoise, a sapphire, and a diamond. The third row, a jacinth, and an agate, and an amethyst. And the fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold settings. And the stones shall have the names of the sons of Israel. Twelve according to their names, like the engravings of a signet, each one with its own name, they shall be according to the twelve tribes. You shall make chains for the breastplate at the end, like braided cords of pure gold, and you shall make two rings of gold for the breastplate, and put the two rings on the two ends of the breastplate. Then you shall put the two ch braided chains of gold in the two rings which are on the ends of the breastplate and the other two ends of the two braided chains you shall fasten to the two settings and put them on the shoulder straps of the ephod in the front. You guys staying with me on this? You guys could all go home and make one like tomorrow? Yeah, me neither. You shall make two rings of the gold and put them on the two ends of the breastplate on the edge of it with it which is on the inner side of the ephod. And verse 27, two other rings of gold you shall make and put them on the two shoulder straps underneath the ephod toward its front, right at the seam above the intricately woven band of the ephod. 
They shall bind the breastplate by means of its rings to the rings of the ephod. So they're tied together, the ephod and the breastplate, using a blue cord. Now, I underline that in my Bible because the breastplate is a, it's a garment that signifies service. And then the ephod is, a, is something that signifies authority. So authority and service are intricately woven together, literally, by this blue heavenly cord. So that it is above the intricately woven band of the ephod, and so that the breastplate does not come loose from the ephod. They're supposed to be permanently woven together. And so here's the point of this particular garb. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel on the breastplate of judgment over his heart. So not only are they to be on his shoulders, but they're supposed to be near and dear to his heart. The, The center for our being. The place where we reason from. The place that we feel things. They're to be close to his heart when he goes before the Father. And when he goes into the holy place as a memorial before the Lord continually. And so here we have this breastplate of judgment. Now, Isaiah 53 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and he's carried our sorrows. Notice that on this breastplate, he carries them close to his heart. He doesn't just lead us and unfeelingly like a general who just has to get his thing done. He leads us like someone who cares about us because he does deeply. He, he bled for us. He died for us. But we see this even in the high priest who was meant to carry these 12 tribes not underneath his feet to be submitted to him and not by his head to be an authority over them, although he is, but instead near to his heart to walk with him into the presence of God. He walks with them. He carries them with him uh, near and dear to his heart. Now, it's woven in the same material as the ephod, and I said this already, but the ephod is a symbol of authority, and then the breastplate is a symbol of a servant. Kingdom authority is linked to servant attitude, and we see this in Jesus in Matthew in chapter uh, 23. Matthew 23, verse 11 says, But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. He who has authority among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And I love this because in in the kingdom of God, service and authority are flipped on its head, aren't they? If you want to be the greatest among everyone in the kingdom of God, you must become the servant of Everyone in the kingdom of God. So when Jesus said this, he was telling us as a precept, if you want to have authority in my kingdom, then serve. If you want to have authority in my kingdom, then kneel. And what's interesting about that is that Jesus personified this perfectly when he showed his disciples in John chapter 13 how, what greatness looked like. He didn't show them his trophy room. He actually showed them his nakedness. And I don't mean that in a perverse way. I mean, he took off the only worldly garment that he had, his tunic. And then he took his sash and he girded himself like a slave. He became a slave to serve you and I 
And then when he died in our place, he's been exalted into the greatest position you could ever be in. Among every other name given among men, Jesus Christ, Lord of all, to the glory of God the Father. And so we see that also in Hebrews 12, but I'm not going to go there right now. So notice this, this breastplate and how it's made. It's a span by a span. And so we've seen other types of measurement in the Bible, but a span is just this. Take your hand and do the hang loose symbol. You remember that from like the 80s? In Hawaii, I think they do this. But like just put your hand like this and the measurement from your pinky, the end of your pinky, to the end of your thumb, that's a span. Now obviously it depends on whose hand it is, right? If it's, if it's mine, it's tiny. And some of you have ginormous spans. But nonetheless, it was to be a span of whoever made it. And when they made it, it would cross their chest, kind of like your hand probably does on yours. And so what's interesting about this distance is that between this distance on the breastplate would be what? Twelve stones. And those stones would be within the size of the palm of the hand of the high priest. But what I love about this is that though the high priest on earth would only have room for 12 stones, our high priest, Jesus Christ, Isaiah chapter 40, can't remember the verse, it's escaping me right now, he's actually, uh, he's measured the heavens in the span of his hand. That's what Isaiah wrote. So the span of our high priest's hand is big enough to hold every one of you and I. He's got the whole world in his hand. That's where that song comes from. Because he literally, within his hand, this is just his hand. This is just, is his arm too short that he cannot save? Is the span of his hand too small that he can't grip everyone? Whosoever will may come. I believe that as the youth go and look at the ark in Kentucky, they're going to see that that ark was big enough that it could hold more than the eight souls that got on. That God made enough room for the entire world at that time to get on that boat. And I believe that Jesus Christ, within the span of his hand, his ability to save, the strength of his own might, has the ability to save every soul that's ever existed on the face of the earth. And yet many are called, but few are chosen. Because Narrow is the way. Narrow is the gate. But not narrow is the salvation. His ability to save is not what limits who will be saved. And I hate that because you and I have a choice to make. And so I love it at the same time because when he promises to save whosoever will may come, it's not because he's only got 240 seats and whoever gets a seat first. It's whosoever is willing to humble himself and come to him. And so within the span of his hand are the gemstones, four by three, and gold settings held by gold chains. That gold is a picture of deity holding it all together. One tribe engraved on each and every gemstone. The 12 tribes within a span, and we are all gems. And I want to take just a moment that I forgot to during first service. When God looks at you and I within the span of his hand, he doesn't see rocks. You know, when we get gravel for our driveway, he doesn't see gravel. He sees gemstones. Have you ever looked at your brothers and sisters in the body of Christ 
and seen the gemstones that God sees in you and I. I would encourage you this week to pray for one another and to ask God to give you the insight to see within each other the gemstones that he sees. Tell you what, it'll knit us together in a tighter fashion than it ever has. God sees in you and I gemstones. He doesn't see inch minus or inch clean. He sees rubies and sapphires and amethyst and all the things that we wear in our class rings. He sees that in you and I. He sees us polished and finished. And when he represents us before the Father, he doesn't say, hey, this breastplate I'm carrying of all these people of gravel. He says, Father, take care of these gemstones. Not one of them that you've given to me am I going to lose. And so that's how he sees us. He sees us as gemstones. But then in verse 30, as we finish up with this breastplate, there's another piece that's built into the breastplate. Verse 30 says, You shall put in the breastplate of judgment. And I, I don't know about you guys, but when I read breastplate of judgment, I think about, you know, this shield that's taken a beating. And while Jesus Christ took a beating for us, he took the very death sentence that we deserve for our sin, he also, within that breastplate, within his heart, has provided judgment for you and I. Not judgment to be judged, but judgment, discernment. The ability to make wise decisions based on wise counsel. So look at this in verse 30. You shall put in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. The Urim and the Thummim were two stones within the breastplate, not exposed, but hidden within the breastplate, that they would, they would trust God, they would seek Him, they would inquire of the Lord for direction, and then they would pull out a stone. And when they pulled out the stone, many believe that these, the words Urim and Thummim mean lights and perfections, which is what wi wisdom is for us. God shines light, and He gives us perfect wisdom by His Spirit. But they're kept within the breastplate, and they were to reach within the breastplate, the high priest would, and he'd pull out a stone after inquiring of the Lord. And that, from that very stone, he would discern the will of God. Now, some commentators believe that these were actually bright and brilliant like diamonds. And so when they'd pull them out, it didn't matter which stone it was, they would turn the color of the judgment. Black for no and white for yes. But there are others that believe that each stone was the will of God. It was one white stone and one black stone. Because we like our discernment to be black and white, don't we? When we pray to God, we want yes or no. We don't want maybe. Uh, maybe you're like me. You never want to hear wait. And you definitely don't want to hear anything other than what you actually already wanted, right? We sometimes come to, Lord, let me know your will as long as it agrees with what I've already decided, right? We pray that, right? But I love how the Lord, he goes into the presence of the Father anyway, and then he sorts through it, and, he, and then he gives us the right answer. Or, the, you know, he always gives the perfect will of God. And that's what Romans 12 says, that we may be able to know the perfect and acceptable will of the Lord. And then by doing it and obeying it, that we actually reveal the perfect and acceptable will of the Lord to the, to the world. That they get to see in us the will of God uh, being fulfilled in this world. And so inquiring of the Lord's direction, they would use the Urim and the Thummim. But I think it's interesting that these are to be kept and concealed within the breastplate, which obtains the 12 tribes. 
So in the way that they were to seek wisdom from within the ranks of God's people, you and I need to seek wisdom from within the body of Christ. That God in 1 Peter says, through the pen of Peter, that God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness in Christ Jesus. And Christ Jesus, He is the head and we are the body. And so we get to minister to one another by speaking into situations, by seeking the will of the Lord on behalf of one another, praying for one another, and sometimes He uses one of us as a mouthpiece to speak that into their lives, to speak that over them. And so God is still speaking today, and He speaks through each one of us. And many times when we're assembled together, it's not just to sit and get. Sometimes it's to speak Sometimes it's to receive from one another, not just the guy who's the talking head up front. To pray for one another concerning situations throughout the week. Because guess what? Uh, Sunday morning is just a smorgasbord, but the rest of the week we get to feast as well. God's given each one of us relationships with one another on purpose. He's called you to be together. He's called you to speak to one another. And there's power in words that are filled with the Spirit. So, Verse 31 through 35, we see the robe. So we've seen, he's working from his, the outside in. We see the ephod. We see the breastplate. And then we see this priestly garment called a robe. He said, you shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. Now, wait a minute. I have to back up and finish verse 30. Otherwise, you guys are going to say I skipped something. So Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. He says, you shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue, and there shall be an opening for his head in the middle of it. It shall have a woven binding all around its opening, like the opening in a coat of mail, so that it does not tear. So it's a garment that's seamlessly woven together, and it has an opening where the head goes through like a coat of mail. I love this because the head is exposed, right? But the rest of the body is covered. What's a coat of mail? Some of you like medieval history. That's what they would wear as armor. It would be chain mail. They'd wear it over their bodies to protect them from blows and fiery darts. But you'll notice that the head isn't covered. Jesus Christ didn't cover himself, but he's instead used himself as a covering for you and I. And so he goes to battle for us. He intercedes for us. And in the meantime, it says... Upon its hem you shall make pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet all around its hem, and bells of gold between them all around. A golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate. You notice a pattern there. Upon the hem of the robe all around. The hem is down there at the bottom, and you should be able to see it on the screen, where there's this golden hem, and then there's bells and pomegranates hanging from his outfit. Now, You should know that when the high priest went in and he was serving in the temple, that you would always hear this ringing of the bells. But if the bells stopped ringing, you knew that something wasn't right and that perhaps he had died in the presence of God because he hadn't properly dealt with his own sin. He had gone in there presumptively and God judged him. So if the bells stopped ringing, the ministry has ceased of the high priest. But, they would have a rope. So if the bell stopped ringing, it's kind of crude, but it's reality, they'd be able to pull him out because they weren't allowed to go in there by themselves. But it says, verse 35, it shall be upon Aaron when he ministers 
and its sound will be heard when he goes into the holy place, which is the holy of holies, before the Lord, and when he comes out, so that when he's clothed properly, he will not die. Very serious calling, isn't it? To represent people before God and to be in God's presence. God is holy, and no unrighteousness can stand in his presence. But I want to take a minute to talk about the bells and the pomegranates because I was really kind of interested and started digging in because I'm like, why pomegranates? Why does there need to be a pomegranate in between the bells? Well, my kids went to the Polar Express this December. And at the very end, if you've seen the movie, they get the bell, you know, because when he believes, he hears the bell. But what's interesting about bells is that they ring fabulously as long as you don't quench them by squeezing them with your hands. Put your hand around them, and all of a sudden that annoying noisemaker that Polar Express sent home with my kids, it ceases to be. You just hear the clunk, 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 clunk of that little thing inside the bell. But if you take bells, and they're free, and they're ringing, and you put them against one another, they do the same thing. They dampen one another. All of a sudden, you can't hear the individual ringing. All you can hear is the clunking. So what's interesting is that in between the bells, he puts these things called pomegranates. And if you've ever cut one open, what does it look like? What's inside of a pomegranate? Seeds. But what's really cool about the pomegranate, what's really unique, is that around every single one of the seeds, there's what? The fruit. It's like these little red balls with a seed concealed inside of it. Well, you and I know that we are the seeds of the kingdom. And when we get persecuted or pushed... Those, those seeds get scattered to the winds, and that's God's plan, to scatter the gospel through you, you and I. But in order to scatter that seed, he surrounds us and he covers us in what? His blood. So we're all individually covered by the blood of Jesus, and yet when we're joined together, we're a pomegranate. We're all joined. We all fit together. We make one fruit, which is kind of like the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is one, by the way. It's not several. It's love. But it can be described, it tastes like joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I'm still working on that one. But as you look at how the fruit of the Spirit tastes, the fruit of the Spirit is love, and you put love in between every one of those bells, each individual bell can ring freely. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it says this, if I can get there. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says, and he's speaking of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which I believe are still for today, otherwise they wouldn't be in the New Testament. But it's interesting because chapter 12 talks about the gifts of the Spirit. Chapter 13 talks about love in between them. And chapter 14 talks about the gifts of the Spirit again. And right at the beginning of chapter 13, the love chapter, it says, Though I speak with the tongues of men, speaking of the gifts of the Spirit, and of angels, but I do not have love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal, a cymbal, a bell. So without love in between the gifts of the church, there's just a bunch of clanking. But with love in between you and I, each individually and corporately, there's this beautiful melody that comes from the bells when the gifts of the Spirit are at work. And so 
maybe that was more than you really signed up for this morning, but I thought that was beautiful. So, back here in chapter 32, excuse me, 28, why do I keep saying that? In verse 36, he says, You shall also make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet. Holiness to the Lord. Now, I'm going to stop there for a moment, if you'll give me uh, just a moment to talk about this phrase that we've seen multiple times now. You've got the shoulder stones with the names engraved on them, like the engraving of a signet. You've got the breastplate with the stones, the engraving on them, like the engraving of a signet. And then now you've got this, this crown or a plate of gold placed on the head of the high priest with holiness to the Lord engraved on it like the engraving of a signet. What's interesting to me about that is that every time there's an engraving on these high priestly garments, the word engrave means to open. So if you dig a grave, you're opening the ground, right? The word grave there in the, in the Strong's, I looked it up, means to open. But a signet ring means to seal or close. So... Our salvation has been opened in that Jesus' body has been opened for us, broken for the blood to pour out and the remission of sin. But then we've also been sealed by the Holy Spirit. So while these stones have been engraved, they've been opened, they've also been used to close. Our, our salvation is signed, sealed, delivered. We're His. And so if you were going to mail something, you wouldn't put a stamp on it in their days. You would, you would take wax and you would use a signet ring to seal it, procuring passage from one land to another. It would be safely transported. And in the same way, Jesus Christ, the stone which the builders rejected, has become the chief cornerstone. He's been locked away in the grave. The ground was opened up and he was placed in there, right? And then he was sealed by the signet ring of Pilate. See, when they sealed the, the cave, it wasn't, they didn't caulk the rock that shut it up so that it wouldn't get any air. They put ropes and stuff around it. They put wax on it, and they put the seal of the authority, the signet ring. But what's crazy is that our salvation was sealed in Jesus Christ through the breaking of the stone and then the opening of the grave. And so, I, I don't know, maybe there's less to it than I'm making, but I just thought it was pretty powerful that this, and on top of that, turn with me to Isaiah in chapter 49 and verse 16. Because as I was thinking about this, this was an afterthought after my study was done. By the way, our study of Jesus is never done. In Isaiah chapter 49, verse 16, starting in verse 14, the people of Israel in Isaiah's day were... Uh, basically um, accusing the Lord of forgetting them. It says, But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken us, and my Lord has forgotten me. And then God responds to this complaint and says, Can a woman forget her nursing child? And you know this, that women are not likely to forget their nursing children and not have compassion on the son of her womb. Surely they may forget. You know, we can do that. We're people. Yet, God says, even if a woman were to forget her nursing child, I will not forget you. 
See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. He's etched in stone our names in the palms of his hands. Permanently. Not only opening the skin, but then sealing it. Kind of like a tattoo, right? They open your skin with the needle. They place the ink in there, and then your skin heals over. He says, I've inscribed your names in the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. I could never forget you, is what he's saying. God can never forget you. He has you before his heart. He has you on his shoulders forever. This is not a ministry that ceases to happen. And so we have in here just this picture of Jesus Christ never forgetting us, permanently remembering us. We have, by our sin, affected his body The scars of him bearing our sins on his body are eternal. When you and I see him, he will still have the holes in his hands. He'll still have the nail punctures in his legs or his feet. We will know who he is because we'll recognize what he's done. We will never forget. That's why I think one of the reasons we cry when we see him in his presence. What have I done? And yet, he looks at us and he says, enter in faithful servant enter into the joy of your lord because he suffered seeing the joy that was set before him which was you and i he did it willingly he did it knowingly so verse 37 he's got this name holiness to the lord he says you shall put it on a blue cord and it may be on the turban it shall be on the front of the turban so it shall be on aaron's forehead that aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things So what we offer to God, by the way, no matter what it is, still has sin tainting it. Do you know that? Whatever you do for God, whatever you offer to God, has sin tainting it. And yet, because we offer it to God through our high priest, Jesus Christ, he is holiness to the Lord. So when he receives what we give to him and he offers it to the Father, it becomes holy because of who offers it. So we have this high priest that even makes our imperfect offerings holy in the sight of God. So that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things which the children of Israel hallow in all their holy gifts. And it shall always be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. And you shall skillfully weave the tunic of fine linen thread. You shall make the turban of fine linen. You shall make the sash of woven work. For Aaron's sons you shall make tunics, and you shall make sashes for them. And you shall make hats for them, for glory and for beauty. So there's multiple hats, multiple tunics, multiple sashes for the priests, but there's only an ephod, there's only holiness to the Lord, there's only all these other things for the high priest. He says, you shall anoint them, consecrate them, And sanctify them that they may minister to me as priests. And you shall make for them linen trousers to cover their nakedness. So even their their undergarments are to be made of linen. And they shall reach from the waist to the thighs. So all these garments that they're to wear uh, close to their skin are to be made of fine woven linen because they breathe well. It's like their under armor, if you will. It, It wicks the sweat away. Why is that important? Why don't they use wool? Because when we do works for God, when we serve God, God wants His glory to be the aroma that comes up 
not our perspiration. Perspiration takes the focus off the Lord and points it to us. But when a work has this sweet-smelling savor, it points to Christ. God's work, if inspired, doesn't require perspiration. Now, that doesn't mean it'll be easy. If it's not inspired work, then even perspiration won't do it. God's not inspired you to do something, you're just grinding it out. Guess what? <laughs> it's, it's not going to get God's will done. God wants our service to him to be inspired by him, not perspired by us. And if you've ever tried to do your will and call it God's, you know how difficult and pointless that is. So the idea is to minister to him, and then what we receive from him, we minister for him. And that was, by the way, I didn't come up with that. I stole it from John Corson. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Isn't it interesting, all the things that Jesus ever did? And it says every time he did a miracle, they saw Jesus' works and they didn't say, Jesus is awesome. They said, they, it says that they glorified his Father. Wow. You got to be good. You got to be cleansed. You got to be righteous. Never, you got to perform that work just right for it to give God the glory instead of yourself. And so we're going to close there today, um, and I'm going to share something I found while reading a commentary by David Guzik. I don't have it behind me. I have it in my notes here. But in uh, verse 43, it says, They shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they come into the tabernacle of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, that they do not incur iniquity and die while serving it shall be a statute forever to him and his descendants after him. So let's talk about Jesus as we close. David Guzik wrote this in his commentary, so I won't take any credit, but I thought it was so good. He says, A contrast between Jesus' clothing when he accomplished his great priestly work and the garments of the high priest. We're going to contrast between Jesus' clothing and the high priest's garments. Number one, Jesus wore no beautiful ephod. He only wore a purple robe while they mocked him. Jesus had no precious gems on his shoulders. He only carried a cross that we deserved. Jesus had no breastplate, number three, with Israel on his heart. Yet he died of a broken heart for Israel and all of mankind. Number four, as the high priest... Jesus had a seamless robe that was not torn, but it was stripped away at the cross. Number five, Jesus heard no delicate sound of bells, proving that the high priest was alive, only the sound of pounding nails ensuring our high priest's death. Number six, Jesus wore no fine linen turban. Rather, he wore a painful crown of thorns. Number seven, Jesus had no headplate reading holiness to the Lord, but instead a life and death showing nothing but holiness to the Lord. Number eight, Jesus had no linen trousers to hide his nakedness. Rather, he bore our sins on the cross in a naked shame. He was stripped naked while he died. And so, Lord Jesus, as we look at the high priest and we look at all of the work that went into representing your people to you. The bridge 
that cross the gap between holiness and sinfulness. Lord, we look at Jesus and we see him not able to get fine linen, uh, not able to have material that breathed well, and yet he suffered anyway, willingly, for each one of us here. And so, Lord, all we can say is wow and thank you. Thank you for suffering in our place. Thank you for exchanging your garments of righteousness in exchange for our garments of suffering and judgment. And we will spend eternity praising you. Help us to grasp, even in in the best way we can, the width, the depth, and the height of the love that you've given us. Lord, it's unfathomable, but we give you praise. So, Father, thank you for loving us so completely. Thank you for working so hard on our behalf. Help us to rest in that finished labor that you've done and to represent you well on this earth until you call us home. In Jesus' name, amen.